The Fred Minnick Show is brought to you by Beeline. Visit findyoursiffingpoint.com, by Michter's American Whiskies, and by 291 Colorado Whiskey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fred Minnick Show. I'm Fred, and I'm excited to announce that we have a special new sponsor for the show. In fact, this is probably... A sponsor you've heard a lot on a lot of shows. You can find them throughout the, you know, sports world and basically everything targeting men. And it's Manscaped. Manscaped.com. They are now the official grooming sponsor of the Fred Minnick Show. You can go to Manscaped.com and uh, put uh, Smooth Fred in the checkout to save 20%. Listen. There's a lot of stuff going on about grooming and men and everything, and I've been gr- I've been growing a beard, and there's all kinds of folks who've got nose hair issues. Manscaped.com is going to help you out with all of those issues. Go to just type in Smooth Fred at checkout to save twenty percent. That's Smooth Fred. You can also find the information in the description. Now, this week's guest is someone I'm a, I'm a big fan of, and we talk about ESPN and life at ESPN, and also how he came to be such a a fan of the brown liquid and bourbon. Trey Wingo, you know him from Gullick and Wingo and the NFL Countdown and the NFL Draft. He is the cover boy of ESPN when it comes to all the things NFL. And I cannot wait for you to check out this interview. But first, a word from our sponsors. 291 Colorado Whiskey aims to create a -a one-of-a-kind, bold, and beautiful Colorado whiskey. Rugged, refined, rebellious. Distillery 291 is an award-winning small-batch whiskey distillery located in Colorado Springs, Colorado, nestled in the shadow of Pikes Peak. Owner and founding distiller Michael Myers grew up on family farms in Georgia and Tennessee, across a countryside defined by rolling hills, horses, and whiskey. He set out to create a flagship whiskey that evoked the Wild West. A cowboy walking into a bar saying, give me a whiskey, and the bartender slamming down a bottle, a bottle of 291 Colorado whiskey. Find a bottle near you at 291coloradowhiskey.com Ride it like you stole it, drink it like you own it, live fast, drink responsibly. Imagine this, an experience centered around five Kentucky Bourbon Trail craft tour distilleries in northern Kentucky, the gateway to Kentucky bourbon. Add five amazing bourbon-centric bars and five delicious bourbon-focused restaurants, cultivating the freshest takes and culinary delights, and you are on the beeline. Start your trip today at findyoursippingpoint.com. Michter's Distillery, our passion is making the finest bourbon, rye, and American whiskey possible. When you only produce very small batch and single barrel whiskey as we do, each and every barrel has to be perfect. No detail is too small for our production team. From careful attention to the 18-month or more air-dried wood used in the construction of our barrels, to entering our distillate into the barrel at the costlier or lower barrel entry proof of 103 so that it's smoother, to heat cycling our barrel houses, to our signature filtration protocol, we spare no expense in pursuing our goal of making the greatest American whiskey. 
and no mictors gets bottled until our master distiller Dan McKee and our master of maturation Andrea Wilson say it's just right. Mictors Fort Nelson Distillery in downtown Louisville, Kentucky is open for tours and tastings. Book your visit on our website and stop by the bar at Fort Nelson for a world-class cocktail. For more information, follow us on social media at Mictors Whiskey, go to Mictors.com, or visit your favorite bartender. Mictors Distillery. It's all about the whiskey. Joining me on the Beeline Hotline, it's kind of fun saying that because you're always saying that, uh, you know, you've got a sponsor that you always have to say someone's coming in on, but go to visityoursippingpoint.com. That's a place where you go to Northern Kentucky and find out all their bourbon bars. But uh, what's it like being on the other end? Because you're you're always interviewing people. You're, you don't give out a lot of interviews. I, the bourbon helps, I guess. Yeah, no, it's it's fun. It is it is always strange though. Like uh, last summer, I was I went on Rich Eisen's show, and uh, it was weird sitting in the guest chair. Like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be, and you're there, and it's <laughs> no, it, it does it, it is a little uh, sometimes off putting, but it's 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 good to be here and great to talk to you, Fred. Well, my guest, of course, today is uh, Trey Wingo. Um, you know, has had an incredible sportscasting career and you know my my love for sports is has always put me on espn you know you know day and night and um you know trey you've been you've been one of my one of my favorite uh, people to listen to over the years and you just got such a you've got such a smooth delivery such a calm always like conversational style it's just always been fun to listen to you well, I appreciate that, and the liquor helps. So you know that's a, that's a big part of it. <laughs> well, Never on the air, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But obviously, <laughs> where I set up in my basement bar, yes, we can have that conversation. Now, it, was there was there a hiding spot at ESPN that you could keep a little bourbon? No, 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 ixnay on that at all. Never happened. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, Never. go. When I had Golik on here, he did say that if there was a good bottle of bourbon and someone stole it, that you would be everybody's number one suspect. I think that's fair. I mean, I tend to post a, a fair amount of uh, picks by the out by the fire pit with a with a nice glass filled with one or two things, and I I think he referenced that when he was on the show. So I'll I'll happily wear that badge. So tell me about your uh, your your sipping background. Everybody knows about your sports side, but how did you get into to the finer the finer alcohols of life? Um, you know, like anybody else, if you do something long enough, you're going to want to try and do different things, and so. Uh, you know, we uh, we enjoy those little things that that sometimes get overlooked uh, when you're not sipping, for lack of a better term. And there are real intricacies and real differences in the way so many of those liquor these liquors are made. That there are subtle nuances to them, very much like wines, uh, that give it a bunch of different flavors and tastes. And, and the presentation and the aroma and the whole thing makes it a more enjoyable experience. And you've got quite the back bar there. Do you have a favorite section of the bar? Um, wherever there's a full bottle. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, I do look, I, I do enjoy making sure, like we built this house six years ago and we wanted to make it a, a, an adult party house because the kids mm -hmm. were grown and out of college. So we wanted to make it a place where, A, they would want to come back and hang out and B, where we could have a really good time. And so we, we went uh, when we were building the house, I went to this place called the Soho House Hotel in Chicago, and they had this unbelievable bar up there. And I said, you know what? I want a bar like that. So I took a picture of the bar, brought it home, and, and uh, gave it to our builder, and he did a great job sort of recreating 
what the atmosphere was like at the Soho House Hotel in Chicago. Yeah, that's a great hotel. That's a great, uh, great little spot there. And it looks like to your to your left, behind you, to your left is where you're keeping the bourbon there. I see a little Knob Creek and some Woodford Reserve. What else you got? Some Basil Hayden? Basil Hayden there. Uh, we also have some uh, some uh, Glamorangi and uh, some uh, a bunch of other stuff over there that, that's hiding. Heritage Hills, I think, is over there as well. Um, and we've got a little bullet as well. That might be in the upstairs bar, though. That's right. Oh. There's one bar. More than one bar. And then, then in, the, in the bedroom, he's got the desk whiskey and... <laughs> You know, that, that's more like the liquor cabinet than a bar. That's just, that's just for handy use, you know. Well, well, I sent you some. Um, one of the things that I sent you is one of my, one of the one of the whiskey contenders of the year right now, and that's my old Fitzgerald, the old Fitzgerald, fourteen-year-old bottle in the bond. Right there. That's it. Let's start with that one. Okay. So this is a this is a brand that was actually kind of became famous when Pappy Van Winkle owned it. Pappy Van Winkle? Yeah, Pappy Van Winkle was a real real person. Okay. And, and he actually he owned this brand uh, for a good chunk of time at his family distillery called Stitzel Weller. Okay. It then, uh, it then was, you know, Pappy died in the mid-1960s. Um, his, his kids and his... Um, his other owners ended up selling the distillery in 1972 and it ended up in a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the years. And in the nineties, the company that owned it, then um, United distillers started selling off the brands and a company called uh, heaven Hill purchased old Fitzgerald and they started making a similar recipe as to what they were making at Stitzel Weller. And this is a, what we would call a weeded bourbon so most bourbons, uh, bur- to be bourbon, it has to be majority corn. Right. And, and then, you know, they can put any kind of grain they want into, like whether it's oats or tri kale. but most people are doing rye or wheat and barley. And then they'll distill it and put it in a new charred oak barrel. So this would be kind of like in that sub-designation of, of a weeded bourbon. And this is a, I mean, people who like these, you know, these styles of bourbons, you know, tend to really like really powerful, strong caramel notes. So, this is um, since you are a an everyday everyday sipper. Cheers to you, my friend, and cheers. thanks for coming on. Happy to do it. Now, I don't know if you um, how you taste, but when you uh, when you smell it, smell it with your mouth open. By smelling it with your mouth open, you'll actually pick up more than just the alcohol fumes. Yep, I can I can see that. What are you picking up? What are you picking up in it? Um, not quite sure, actually. Is there a little oaky in there? Like a, like like the toasting of an of a of oak, just like the starting right. of like a little bit of a, a fire there. You definitely. It's interesting you say that. I've never really tried to sniff with my mouth open before, and now it's all that I can think about is am I doing that correctly? Just You just do it just a little bit, like just open it a little bit and go back and forth on your nose. Your nostrils, every nostril will smell differently. Right. Inevitably, you know, one might be a little bit more receptive than the other. Gotcha. So, So you definitely can pick up you you can pick up more on on one nostril than the other. 
it's a very interesting you know science there are people who study um the genetics of smelling and tasting happens more in sweden than the united states for some reason but they've got all of this data that shows that your the way you smell and taste is really it's genetics just like the you know being an athlete and so I was about to say, it sounds very much like an analytics department from a baseball team exactly Unfortunately, there's not a there's not a fantasy uh, there's not a fantasy <laughs> tasters league. But if there was, you'd be living that life right now, my friend. If I if I was, I'd probably be the. Um, okay, I'd that's like to, I'd like to think I wouldn't be a first round bus, but yeah. you know, never that's, know. That was a really interesting sort of secondary wave of flavor that I got there. What are you picking up? I wish I was. I wish I could be as subtle as nuanced as you in this, but I want to. I want to taste that again. Because there's a distinct flavor to start, and then a, a second sort of flavor takes over. That's really that's really fascinating. This is the old old Fitzgerald. This is old Fitzgerald, and I'll tell you, it's a, it's a bit of a caramel bomb, and then. Yeah. And then you know you do you do get some uh, some banana. I get some bananas here, um, and I get a little bit of vanilla. But you know, there's more to it than that. But definitely the vanilla. I can definitely taste the vanilla. By the way, uh, on the story you told me about this, I think it's clear that we don't have enough pappies anymore, right? I feel yeah. like, right? I mean, I feel like a pappy had to be someone that was in the 50s or 60s. I feel like we we need more pappies. Yeah. Well, you know the the his. Um, Pappy was like so common in the South, and then it started oh, yeah. kind of getting, you know, thrown out. And uh, I think there was like right now we have a lot of uh, unique names coming out, and the, the 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 tried and true names that keep on going are Fred and Trey. I'll tell you right now, <laughs> they. Yeah. It's, I'll tell you a funny story about that, right? Like I grew up. My parents are both from Texas. But I grew up in the Northeast and was born in New York City, grew up in Connecticut. And I went to school in Texas. And I, through my entire first 18 years, I never met another Trey in my life. Not one. Uh, there are trips up in the Northeast, but not Trey's because Trey means three. It's a long story what my real long name is. But anyway, I went down to Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And the first week there, I met four other Trey's. And I was like, okay, I get it now. Like my family was from Texas and that was a very Texas name signifying the third. But there wasn't one growing up, and then when I went down to school in Texas, I ran into a bunch of them. Now you were you were when you were in Texas. Um, did you study journalism? There was yeah, a broadcast I, journalism. I, yeah, I mean, I changed my major five times just to graduate. So <laughs> I, I started out with all the best of intentions, Fred, uh, and then you know it became much more of a social experience. But I did graduate as a communications specialist. And if you ask me what that means, it'll tell you. I'll tell you because I was going to be a speech major, and then they said, "Well, if you're a speech major, you need one more lab science." And then I said, "Well, I'm definitely not a speech major then." So that's how I graduated as a communication specialist. And the, Baylor was pretty good in football back then. They were. I mean, the arc of Baylor football is really kind of weird, right? We were terrible yeah. for many years. Uh, then we got good in the '70s and '80s. And then we got terrible for another two decades, and now I think we're going to be good again, and we've been good again since. So the arc has been 
something very unusual. Like when I was at school, there were players, we go to a bowl game every year and there were players drafted in the first, second round almost every year off that team. Mm-hmm. Obviously went away for about two decades and then it came back and, uh, and Matt Rule just left and Dave Aranda's taken over, but uh, they just won their first game 47 to 14 over Kansas over the weekend. So we're excited about that. Yeah. I'm an Oklahoma state guy. So we, I'm very familiar with, uh, with Baylor and, uh, when I when I one of my mentors in college was actually a safety for Baylor, probably around that time, Rob, Rob McClendon, and he yeah. was and he was a um, he used to run the uh, the agricultural broadcast division at Oklahoma State that I and I did a uh, I did a did some shows over there, but um, uh, I I remember him telling me about like Mike Single like there were all these like uh, helmets in the locker room that Mike Singletary cracked, Dad of helmet. I think I think there were fourteen of them in his collegiate days. Samurai Mike uh, took down fourteen uh, fourteen helmets during his playing days at Waco. I've got to I got to say I think he's probably the greatest linebacker of all time. You know it's it's interesting, right? Because first of all, the lineage of the middle linebacker position alone for the Bears is ridiculous. Yeah, Butkus, Mike Singletary, Brian Urlacher, uh, and then you get into okay those between the tackle guys. And then there are the guys that are now the outside linebackers, or we consider edge rushers now, uh, and the way they sort of attack things. I mean, Singletary did things very differently than, say, a contemporary like Lawrence Taylor would do his job. Mm-hmm. He was an edge linebacker or an outside linebacker, and Singletary was very much inside. But I agree. Like, Singletary, he, he was incredible. I mean, right from the get-go when he got to the Bears, his rookie year, I mean, he announced his presence with authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you knew right away that Mike Singletary was going to the Hall of Fame with the way he played, the intensity, the Singletary eyes mm-hmm. to this day. If you if you if you want to Google it or look it up on YouTube just to see the ferocity just that came through his eyes, let alone everything else that he played with, it was pretty incredible. And he was athletic to the point where I think he like his skill sets would thrive today as well, even in, like in a passing situation. Agree. You know. Yeah, and he was and he was intense. There's this great clip. Uh, NFL Films does such a great job. If they you do. really love football, like NFL Films, it just speaks to your soul. You know, I, I still hear the voice of John Facenda all the time in my head when I'm watching NFL Films, and he's been dead for decades. But there's this one clip where Mike's just saying, all day, baby. It's an all-day kind of party. We're going to be here all day. And it's just like you can just feel it, like coming through the screen still to this day. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's, that is one dude I would not want to be up on up against no. on the other side. I'd be right behind you, wishing you all the best. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go to the uh, Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel. Okay, got that now, one. Now this is a this is a new uh, a new series coming out of Elijah Craig. All right. Now Elijah Craig, this is um, you know, there's a lot of stories and stuff in sports, but Elijah Craig is is supposedly the father of bourbon. Um, yeah, I have. This upstairs at the other bar. Oh, nice. So but this I don't is know if it's a specific one. Th- this is so they take the regular Elijah Craig and they put it in a they put it in another barrel uh, like that right. that's been sl- slightly toasted uh, for a few additional months. But on here on their label they have it as the father of bourbon. Um, yeah. It's not true. I mean Elijah Craig was a distiller, but there's not really solid definitive evidence that he was the. Uh, father of bourbon in one of my books right. i wrote that uh, uh bourbon labels have as much bullshit per square inch as a political lad so 
So it's with the reliability of Wikipedia. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, uh, I, I'll say like the labels you can't trust. Uh, there's so much of bourbon's history that is really fanciful and right. the folklore is becomes the history. And sure. then you, and then the history becomes the people telling the folklore. It's right. just, but the reason why the Elijah Craig becomes a really important part to American whiskey history is that in the 19, um, 1950s, bourbon was trying to export and the world had, was tariffing bourbon and they were basically trying to allow scotch to have the upper hand you know to help the united kingdom recover from world war right. ii right and they were people were saying like bourbon is not unique it's there's nothing special about it and so there was this big effort to make bourbon a unique product to the united states and it finally happened in 1964 uh in large part because G jfk made it a priority to work on exports but you know, so now to this day, you can't make bourbon anywhere else in the world. And, you know, but it all and they use the Elijah Craig story because it was it made it sound very American. He was a Baptist minister. They said he got uh, he invented bourbon on the same day that George Washington got inaugurated. You know, it was just uh, that, that I got to say that's kind of funny. Having gone to a Southern Baptist school at Baylor University, that a Baptist preacher uh, made bourbon because Ixnay on that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> promise you that. Well, it's, on campus, you know. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like all of, all of these hardcore religions have distillers in their DNA. Like the Mormon, the Mormon Church, which I don't think you can get any more temperance than the Mormons. Uh, Brigham Young was a distiller. They're like high priests in the 1800s. Were all whiskey dealers. I mean, they peddled the good stuff. Now, I, I'm fascinated on, on your front how you got into this and how you created this, because I, I listen, obviously, you're doing very well. And like you said, you, you did some some journalism work at school. Where did you when did it be some, become for you? And here I am doing the thing that I normally do. I'm now interviewing <laughs> you, but I find this fascinating. How did you how did you create this path? Well, I was um, I graduated uh, Oklahoma State with a degree in agricultural communications at the time. Wow, that is really good, by the way. Kind of wow. kind, kind of like um, it's got some of that toasted oak notes there that you yeah. liked earlier, like a little yep. bit of a marshmallow, kind of like a marshmallow over an open fire. That is really sweet. So I, um, at the time, I was, the, I was writing for the Daily Oklahoman in the sports department, and I was their copy editor, and... You know, and I don't think I've really talked about this much, um, but there were there were two copy editors at the Daily Oklahoman who were Oklahoma State uh, journalism students, um, myself and Josh Crutchmeyer, who is now the art director for the New York Times. Wow! And in uh, Barry Trammell, you know, the legendary columnist for the Daily Oklahoman, sure. wrote a column after we left saying like. Uh, how we were the two best copy editors he ever had. I thought he was just blowing smoke up our ass, but yeah. but I, I I decided to get out of sports because uh, a couple things like the Oklahoma State plane crash was weighed very heavy on me, Tough one. and, and um, 
and I just didn't I didn't always like how athletes were. You know, athletes sometimes had like this kind of bravado, like they thought they were better than the people asking questions kind of thing. And and that and that bugged me. And so I decided yeah. to like take take kind of my my journalistic skills to like uh science. Like I started writing about I became a tech writer in forestry. And at the same time I was in the Army National Guard. That's how I paid for college. And 9-11 happens, I get sent to Iraq, you know, that whole yeah. forestry thing was great, but it didn't it didn't last. Obviously, I got sent to Iraq as an army journalist, and so I was doing like basically combat photography, combat photography in Iraq. And and it just was when I got back, I tried to go back to Iraq as a as a, like an AP, you know, reporter or a Gannett reporter, right. but they were like you're too close, like you can't you can't go back. You were a soldier. And right. look, looking back, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. And so the only job I could get was as a, was a, like a food editor. And at the time I didn't know the difference between ranch dressing and balsamic vinaigrette, you know? So my, my palate and understanding of food was not high, but I did drink a lot of bourbon. And when you write about food, you eventually write about bourbon. Sure. And I just started writing about it and kept writing about it and learning and applying some techniques. Um, and tasting and it just it just took off and that's very cool now here i am here i am with one of my uh one of my heroes in uh you know in sports media so cheers well, I appreciate that's a great story cheers to you that's great so you've had a you've had an amazing career tell me about your your story how did you get to the worldwide leader of sports well, it's interesting. um you know when I was in college, ESPN was just starting. And I don't know how many people know this, but like ESPN was never supposed to be what it is now. The guy who, who founded the company was a guy named Bill Rasmussen, who was a University of Connecticut grad. And all he wanted to do was create a local cable station in Connecticut where he could broadcast, you know, Yukon sports, basketball, soccer, football, hockey, whatever. So he found the cheapest land he could find Bristol, Connecticut, and having grown up and spent a large part of my life in Connecticut, I can tell you that is correct. Bristol would, would be the cheapest land you could find in the late 70s. Um, <laughs> and he went to start buying time on the satellite, and he was inquiring about what does it cost to do this for there. And the guy said, no, no, you're, you're not getting it. It, does, it costs the same. You're just buying a time on the bird, which is what they call the satellite. You're just buying time on the bird. Where you send it is irrelevant. And he's like, wait a minute. So you're telling me for the time on the satellite, I could send things from New York to Los Angeles for the same price, essentially, as sending it from Greenwich to New London, Connecticut. And he was like, yeah. And he's like, well, maybe we should do that. And that's how it all started. So, you know, ESPN really was never supposed to be the worldwide leader in sports. It was just going to be a Connecticut cable station. And. You know, from a very simple idea came a, a monolith, for lack of a better term, all these years later. I think we just celebrated our 41st or 42nd uh, anniversary on September 7th. Uh, September 7th, 1979 was the day the, 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 the station launched. So my early days in college were the first few years of ESPN. And I was like, what is this? Because it was Australian rules football and, you know, slow pitch softball and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then it sort of caught on and everyone started, uh, you know, obviously watching it and, and was on all the cables uh, packages. 
And I thought it would be kind of cool to do that. So I got a job in Binghamton, New York. That was my first on-air job in the late 80s. And I was there for two years. And then I got a job in Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, where I was uh, not only the local uh, sportscaster, but I did some play-by-play for Lehigh University basketball and football. Mm -hmm. I was only there nine months. And then I got a job in St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri. So to make a long story short, and I apologize for dragging this out, I was there less than six months, and I got a note before you know, we had computers and email, all kind of stuff. It was a, a notepad that said, hey, call all this guy, Al Jaffa, blah, blah, blah. Well, growing up in Connecticut, I knew that 203 was the Connecticut state, area state code, so area code. So I'm like, why is someone from Connecticut calling me? And as I'm calling the number, I'm like, Al Jaffa, I know this name. Why do I know this name? He was the talent recruiter for ESPN. I had never sent them a tape. Somebody else had sent them a tape. I didn't have an agent at this time. So someone had forwarded a tape to Al Jaffe, or maybe he'd been in St. Louis at some time and seen something I did. Um, and so within a year of me being at, in St. Louis, they offered me a job. But I was, they said, if you're under contract, your station has to agree to let you come for the interview. And my station wouldn't let me so because I was under contract. So it took a few years. But a few years later, um, they called again and we had a window and I, I got to ESPN in 97. That was November 1st, 1997. And we're almost 23 years later. Wow. And it's changed so yeah. much since then. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, ESPN, I said this once like 12 years ago and people thought I was crazy. Like when ESPN started, you could hide from the police on ESPN, right? I mean, it was like a, it was the definition of a mom and pop startup. It was like a blog that turned into whatever it's turned into now, the worldwide leader. So, you know, I, I think that, the, the hard part for ESPN in its transition from being, hey, look at us, we're different, to being the all-encompassing thing was how do you manage that transition? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's something that's con- it's always continuing, but you know, the industry is changing so fastly. Everything's digital now, what we're doing. Uh, you know, and, and you know, ESPN Plus and Disney Plus, that, that's, that's the wave of the future. So you know, you're trying to incorporate all that and still make sure you can watch sports on television because I think live sports is what keeps television afloat, quite frankly. There are communal events. Like, yeah. we can do this on an iPad or your iPhone, however you want to do it. But when a game is going on, especially a big game, an important game, well, you want to have that thing on your massive TV with as many people as you can in a COVID-friendly environment, you know, have around you watching that. And I think that's the thing that keeps, honestly, a lot of uh, television afloat right now. Well, you know, there's a big game tonight, of course. and. Yeah. uh you know, uh, Baltimore versus Kansas City, and li- living in Louisville, um, and you know, Lamar is like one of the. I'm so glad that the world got to meet him and see him because he's he's an amazing human being. Like, sure is. Our our community just loves him, and uh, well, what are the things that I, I find? I, I you know I, I'm watching and I listen to a lot of sports media and everything and. I find that people can be really, really mean, like toward <laughs> toward the athletes, and you're never yeah. that way. But where where does that come from with some people? They're just so mean. I don't know. Uh, you know, look, there's a million voices out there, and sometimes if you shout, you know, whether the squeaky wheel gets the oil, or uh, that's one theory. But you know, especially in social media, where everybody has a platform to say whatever they want, which I guess is a good thing. But sometimes I wonder if it is really. Um, you know, Twitter can be an amazing tool. Or yeah. just a tool, for lack of a better term. Yeah. You know? And, and I, I don't know. My, my thing has always been, I don't want to predict. I don't want to tell you what I think. I want to watch it 
and experience it and analyze it. That, that's the way I've always approached it. Like, I don't, I don't want to, well, I think this is going to happen. Well, I mean, it may, but I mean, all of that to me is based on doing your homework, doing your research, putting in the time, watching the film, watching the games, getting the information, getting the data, and then seeing how it all plays out. Um, I've never been a, a guy just to scream at people. That's just not who I am. That's not who I ever want to be. Um, but there are a lot of people that do it, and there are a lot of people that do it, quite frankly, and they're very successful at it. That's yeah, I mean, you, 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 definitely, you definitely do see um, in the last five years, like I, I remember watching Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith, and I would, I would alter my schedule around that. You know, at yeah. at, at first. <laughs> well, and, you, you look. It's not for everybody, and I get it. And obviously, Skip said some stuff last week that I, you know, I, I didn't want to bring it up because I don't want to acknowledge it, and I didn't want to pretend like it was based in anything that was reality. But you know, that's 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 the way he's chosen to live and be his brand. So go with it, man. Well, Tebow's not playing anymore, so you know. <laughs> exactly. Give me something else. Yeah, uh, but you know this is, um, you know this is obviously we're we're here to talk a lot about the about sports, but also whiskey. And the next one I'm going to take you to is Four Roses. Now Four Roses is a, this is a, and I, this is the one you've got is this year's limited edition small batch. So it's 2020. It's on my list for best whiskeys of the year. So best whiskeys of the year. And I poured yeah. you my last drops of it. So wow. I yeah, so you, you have the last of it. So I don't even have this myself. So I'm wow. pouring a little bit from 2014. Now, Four Roses has, uh, they the, it's a bourbon, but they use an incredible amount of rye in their recipe. As you may recall, I said Old Fitzgerald uses wheat. Mm. And when you put a lot of rye in a recipe... It tends to yield uh, an extremely high um, spice. So with yeah. Four Roses, you typically get a lot of baking spices, you know, like a cinnamon or a nutmeg, maybe a cardamom. Definitely taste both of those in this one, absolutely. Well, wow, that's good. I feel bad that I'm not sharing it with you. Well, you know, I am I am sipping on something that's pretty daggum good. The 2014 I, single barrel is pretty good. I think you're going to be okay. I really that's you said this is on your running for best whiskey, huh? Yep. It's in it's in the running for best whiskey of the year. Wow. That's really good. And in fact, that's the first time I've mentioned that I think on the I usually Yeah. I'm going to have another sip of this one. Yeah, that is. I mean, Four Roses just always hits a spot. The the interesting story about them, they were owned by Seagram's. Seagram's acquired them uh, in the 1940s, and they in the 1950s they took them off of the off the U.S. market. It was yeah. a it was a it was a business plan that they wanted to they wanted to focus on a little brand called uh, Crown Royal. And yeah, of instead it. of Four Roses, and so they started selling uh, Four Roses bourbon overseas, and then created a label here in the United States, a Four Roses blend that was like a rot gut blend. But all the while, like in Spain and uh, France and Japan, you could buy the actual bourbon. 
but the distillers in, in Kentucky and the people who made it could never access the bourbon. They'd have to go overseas to buy it. And it comes back. Seagram's goes out of business. The grandson uh, tries to get in the movie business and just fails miserably, ends up selling the company in a Japanese brand called Kirin, which you know him for Kirin, Kirin Beer. Beer. Uh, they acquired Four Roses, so this is owned by Japan, and they brought bourbon back in to the United States, um, and they've been on a they've been on a good twenty year run of excellence since. Well, well I, I, you mentioned Kieran. Now I have to tell you this story and just show you how things have changed over time. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, we had an English department. Uh, a teacher who asked us to write up our essay about something that we really enjoy. And one of my friends in high school wrote it about his favorite beers. Granted, he was 17 at the time when this was going on. <laughs> so, you know, that was when the drinking age was actually 18. We hadn't even gotten there yet. And, uh, you know, he wrote it and he said, well, my personal favorite, I like to sit back with a nice frosty carrot. Now, if you had written that today as an 18 year old, when the legal drinking age is 21, all hell would break loose. I think he got an A on the paper. Uh, so shout out to my friend John B, whose last name I will keep quiet. But uh, <laughs> you know, when you said Kieran, that's the first thing I thought of that English paper. That's awesome. I, I love that story because you know you're you could drink at eighteen um, yeah. during that time, and you know what's we as a country we we struggle we struggle with with consumption of alcohol. You know, people either drink way too much um, or not at all. It's like a, it's like two extremes. And I, and I believe that if you sip and you're responsible, you know, we can have good lives. Well, it's interesting along those lines, Fred, because, you know, there is no drinking age in most of Europe and in Germany, uh, you know, the Autobahn has no speed limit and their incidence of drunk driving and deaths per capita compared to a, a much larger country in the United States are significantly less because of the things you, you just mentioned. I think a lot of people understand, hey, this is part of our culture. This is who we are. We're going to show you how to do this responsibly. And it's not considered taboo. So it's not mm -hmm. some sort of you know, hidden forbidden fruit that you can't get to. But it's something that you know, we sort you, they sort of grow up with and they understand with it from a very young age. And then it doesn't become this woohoo Vegas, you know, yeah. kind of situation. It's just something that's part of how they live. And it, it, I think it speaks to what you were just talking about. It's interesting. We are like, we are like founded as like uh, people who are trying to get away from religious persecution as a country uh, on that side. And they, sure. they, they essentially bring their own level of religious persecution <laughs> with them, right. you know, no. just a different style. Um, right. and then, you know, alcohol has been used as a weapon too. Like it was used, um, it was used against the tribes and, 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 and wars against the tribes. So right. it, it, there's been a lot of bad, there's been a lot of bad associations when it comes to whiskey with our country. Sure. And I, I don't know if we'll ever get a, I don't I don't know if we'll ever get away from it. I really don't. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's it would be something that would be very difficult to uh, to try and change at this point. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think about that a lot because, you know, pre covid, we used to spend a lot of summers overseas. And it was interesting to see how different cultures, whether it was Italy, Germany, Spain, you know, South America, how they how they treated things differently than the way we look at it here. Yeah. 
And then when when alcohol gets involved in sports, you know, I think of like um, you know the Boston Red Sox with the with the beer in, in the locker room. It's like it's very rarely a good story, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was in St. Louis, uh, you know, the brewery ran the Cardinals, and there was a you know there was a there was a tap in the lock in the dug in the, the dugout in the locker room, you know, in the clubhouse right after the game. So it was it was always there. Um, and I think that obviously, like you said, from some of the situations that came up in Boston and other places, they actually had to sort of curtail that. But again, it goes back to our, where, where are we on the moderation level, right? Yeah. Now you're starting to see players, uh, the, the NFL, the NFL used to have a ban on uh, players uh, endorsing alcohol products. And mm-hmm. since that's been lifted, you're starting to see players get more involved, like Indomitian Sioux uh, owns a piece of... Um, of a distillery, uh, although he's no longer in the league, uh, right. Peyton Manning has his own bourbon. Yep, you know? he's at Sweet Cove, right? Isn't it uh, mm-hmm. part of Sweet? Yeah. Yep, it's All pretty good, by the way. It's pretty good. I've heard it's fantastic. I have not, I have not yet sampled it, but I've heard. No, it's good. I'll send you. I'll send you a bottle after this. Oh, so I'll send you a bottle. I should I should have sent you one for this, but I, I think our next one is Knob Creek. Correct. And and that one, I did not send you the last of it. But we'll share this one. But I can't find. I don't know where my Knob Creek Rye is. We have a. You have a bunch back there, so. Yeah, I yeah. I got I got your lot mixed up with someone else's, and right. I think I think that's what happened here. But also, my wife comes into comes into the office and occasionally steals products, and she's a big fan of Knob Creek. <laughs> I'm staying away from that one. Just tell you that. I'll let you guys work that out. Uh, there's a long history of um, like she will take some of my like really rare and allocated uh, bourbons and, and turn them into uh, a whiskey sour. Oh wow! In in like one year, like it was it was my whiskey of the year. It was Booker's Rye, three hundred dollars. I mean now you you can't find it for anything less than twelve hundred, maybe yeah. eight hundred if the people don't know about it. And it uh, with- and she made. She finished it off with freaking whiskey sours, you know? Not great. Not great. Okay, this is a fascinating scent to this one. So this is a rye whiskey. Do I smell a little peppermint in there? You could very well. Rye expresses itself often as a um, as herbs. Yeah. It's killing me. I'm trying to find I'm trying to find this bottle to you know sip with you, but it's just I'm gonna have to go with another rye. I'm letting okay. I'm letting you I'm letting you down, Trey. I'm letting no, you down. So, um, so you're looking at you're looking at a, a category that is rye, which rye is the rye is coming from the Dakotas or Canada or Europe, and uh, it has to be at least fifty one percent rye, and the Knob Creek rye is a real herbal, spicy. Yeah, it, it definitely is giving that flavor. Whereas mine, uh, I, I the only one I had within my reach was the Templeton Rye, which is distilled in um, Indiana and bottled in in Iowa. <clears throat> it smells like a dill pickle with um, the bit of plastic. <laughs> dill pickle with a bit of plastic. I did not. I did not see that combination. Yeah, it, I don't recommend this one. I you definitely have the 
you have the better end of the two, my friend. Well, this one definitely doesn't taste plasticky, but I, those spices that you're talking about, they really pop in this one. And it's right. interesting that you say that because I did. The first thing I thought of was I, I really thought I, I got a, a scent of peppermint. That's fantastic. You know, peppermint yeah. Peppermint is a common note in, in rye, so. That's really good. What's been your favorite so far? Um, you know, the, the, I think the most distinctive was the peppermint coming from uh, from this, uh, what was this last one? Knob Creek. Yeah, Knob Creek rye. But, but I, I think the overall flavorful and smoothness of the Elijah Craig might be my favorite. Nice. Yeah, Elijah, this this toasted barrel. This is a this is a new one on the market. Um, it's been it's been really it's been really welcomed by a lot of folks. So gotcha. you might be able to find this in your local liquor store. Where, do you do you have a place? Do you have a honey hole where you shop? There's a couple of them. Uh, it's it's interesting in our little town in northwestern Connecticut. Uh, the two things that always seem to pop up are another bank and another liquor store. I'm not sure what they're trying to tell us, but. Uh, <laughs> We definitely never run out of shopping options, but there's a couple of them specifically uh, pretty close that uh, we hit, we hit on, a, on a pretty regular basis. So what's what's next for you? Go look and Wingo was um, I was sad to see that go, and I, I really I really enjoyed that waking up with you and and watching you all. Um, it was just a fantastic show. Well, fantastic. I appreciate that. Um, that there there are things that I can say and things that I can't say. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll, the only thing I really can say is that, you know, I, I'm still under contract with ESPN and, uh, we're working on some things and there are some other things in play and we'll see what happens. I understand that all too well and respect it for sure. But your, your time with the Golux, I'm, I, I'd love to kind of shift it over there a little bit and sure. focus on like, what was, who, who had the better punch lines, Golik or Golik Jr.? Well, it's interesting because Mike and I have known each other, you know, for years. We got to ESPN within a year of each other. We live in the same town uh, in Connecticut. Literally, our houses, I think, are a mile and a half apart. And our sons were a couple of years apart. I think Junior's three years older, maybe four, than my son. And they all came up through the same, uh, you know, peewee football program here in town. And, of course, he went on to play at Notre Dame. My son went on to play college football at uh, Georgetown University in D.C. And so, you know, Mike, the first week of NFL Live, NFL Live started in 2003. Mike did the show. And uh, so for us, it was just sort of a different way to do the same thing we've been doing forever. And then when Junior got into the mix, it was funny because I remembered him as like, hey, you're the you're the little roly-poly guy from the Mudhogs football team, you know, and see if <laughs> – this way it's great and junior was great with us because he kept us centered and kept us without sounding like a bunch of old idiots and i really did enjoy that he was a really good counter puncher for us and he's doing really really well right now and i'm really happy to see it. it's his birthday today actually so cheers oh. to michael yeah there cheers send him a text and and you had like um and you you've had to you know navigate the the, the sports world right now, which is, it's a very different time. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of activism going on. There's a lot of uh, restrictions with COVID. 
Yep. Um, I mean, what's it like? What's it like to be covering sports right now? Well, it's interesting because, first of all, there was the, you know, I remember the day it all shut down on March 11th or 12th when the NBA stopped and then the NHL stopped and baseball stopped. And everything just hit a hard pause, but the NCAA tournament stopped. And it was like, all right, well, what's going on here? How long is this going to be? And none of us had any idea at the time. And, and then the only thing that really went on as scheduled was NFL free agency. And there was all this sort of big discussion well, should they be doing it? Should they not be doing it? And my thing was like, look, it's, you know, it's, it's basically business transactions. They're not playing. They're not lining up against anybody. So they absolutely should do it. And there was nothing going on for the longest time. And then that was right before the NFL draft, which of course was uh, three days in the end of April. And when the draft hit, I felt like everybody was just dying to watch something, you know? Uh, and, it was weird. We we had a whole setup, Fred, in Las Vegas for the draft. We were going to do it mm -hmm. in front of the mountains at Caesar's Palace. You know, with these red carpets are right there, going over to uh, the next door casino where we were going to be, and uh, the stage was going to be there. It was this elaborate setup, and in a matter of fifty-three days from when that thing was almost put to bed, uh, they changed everything. We did the draft from Bristol over three days. I was the only one in the studio. All the analysts were remote. All the players were remote at their setups. We had all 32 teams, head coaches, GMs, and owners uh, wired up from wherever they were going to be. And it was really an unbelievable testament to the uh, the agility and the dexterity of everybody at ESPN to, to pull that thing together. And it had a record audience. And, and it was like we had 56 million viewers over the three days all collected, which was just, you know, next year's draft will never, those numbers will never be seen again. You know, I feel bad for how we're going to have to spend next year's draft because it just won't, it just won't be like that. But, um, you know, it was just, I felt like it was something that everybody just needed, you know, and then things sort of started to come back. And then, you know, obviously the activism has been a big part of this and you, mm -hmm. you hear a lot of, well, they should just stick to sports and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, politics have always been in sports. I mean, president Nixon called a play for the Washington, then the Redskins, now the football team, you know, in 1972 in their Super Bowl. So it, I think the the unusual part of this has been players finding their voice and not being afraid to share that voice. And what's really been interesting to me is how quickly college athletes, specifically college football players, have found that they have more power than they ever thought they had. You know, it was the rule. The coach was the law. The coach was the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. That's it. And you just did what he said. Well, now players are realizing there's so much money at stake and, you know, what we think matters too. And, you know, we had a couple of instances this summer where the uh, players checked a coach, Mike Gundy at Oklahoma yeah. State, Mike Norvell at Florida State. I mean, the coaches now realize with the platforms that these players have and people are very interested in, in hearing what they have to say. It's, it's never going to be that way again. You have to walk a very fine line. I think that's been the really interesting part of this whole process for me is how quickly it went from the authoritarian rule to you need to listen to us because without us, you can't get this done. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I think we just need to find some sort of common medium where we can all work together. And I think we're all doing that sort of in real time right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he put that very, very, very strongly, um, and it's um, and there, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of power, uh, you know, come from it. A lot of people like 
I think have come to the forefront as as leaders in in communities. Um, you know, we see it here in Louisville with the U of L basketball sure. team, and and it's 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 really it's really something. And and I hate it when I hate it when people say stick to football, you know, or yeah. stick to basketball. Yeah. I just I just think that undermines people's like uh, citizenship and the fact well, that human. Yeah. I agree. And Fred, the, the hard part is, I think for so many sports fans, the way I explain it, you want to see your athletes on the TV or on the field doing their thing. And I equate it to when you were a kid, let's say you were in fifth grade and you went somewhere and you saw your teacher and you're like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be at the school. You're, you're my teacher. You know, you, you don't do this. You're the teacher. I go to the school. You're there. And that's where I interact with you. And, you know, that's when you realize, oh, wow, teachers actually have lives. You know, they do different things and they do things away from uh, their place of work, just like everybody else. And I think a lot of people uh, think that way about, you know, their sports teams and their athletes. I turn on the TV and you're there, you're doing the thing in the uniform and that's all I care about. And that's fine if that's what you want, but that's not who they are. They're actual people. And, you know, when I've always done the draft, I've tried to say, look, I'm going to explain this as if they're human beings, not as if they're widgets, because they're not you're not buying a product that you. OK, this product is old and defective. We're going to remove him from the lineup. We're going to get this young, new, effective product and put him in the lineup. You are. But that effective product is not just a product. It's, an, it's not an inanimate object. It's a real person with real feelings and real stories and real backgrounds. That is that are going to be shared now in the world we live in. I think that that's been a very difficult adjustment. I think for a lot of people. Well, I tell you what is uh, what has been a difficult adjustment for me as well is miss seeing you on uh, you know uh, Wingo and Golic uh, or Golic and Wingo every day, and it's been a pleasure to have you here for for the brief moment to, to sip a little whiskey with you. Uh, glad to hear that uh, you know. You're such a whiskey fan. I hope I'll send you some more, and hopefully this won't be the last time we toast. Hopefully the next time it's in person. That would be great, Fred. Cheers to you, my friend. Thank cheers you. to you. We got we got a we got a game to go watch. Speaking Let's of Lamar, it. speaking of Lamar, okay. <laughs> big one, big game. I can't wait. So, Trey, it's it's such a pleasure to have you on. Like I said, I've I've looked up to you for a long time. You're a great interviewer even killed guy just uh it makes my, my my heart feel good that you're to know that you're a whiskey drinker so be safe right, out you. there my friend you too and I, kudos to your journey i was fascinated to learn about that that was great thanks for sharing that i appreciate that cheers and be safe you too also vodka sucks <laughs> Oh, man, wasn't that great? I just enjoyed my time with him. And here's the thing. I didn't know about his son playing collegiate football. And that just goes back to my interview with Mike Golick. And if you have not watched that yet or listened to it, you can go uh, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever, however you get your podcasts and, and listen to that. You can find some similarities there. And it, really what it comes down to is like a couple of great fathers, and they, they were kind of like right there neck and neck uh, during their times at ESPN. And it's just great to hear that, you know, he was able to like, uh, you know, get his kid in college to play college football at Georgetown. And that was only a small part of the interview, but it's something that sticks out to me. Of course, I just, that's all I think about anymore is like being a dad and like how to be a better dad. And so I really look up and listen to people uh, who have, you know, you know, raised successful children. 
And uh, that just, just Trey Wingo is just a, a great guy to chat with. And his love for, for the good stuff maybe just got a little bit better because I told him my thoughts on vodka there at the end. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to us this uh, this week. If you haven't, um, make sure that you click that subscribe button and give us a review while you're at it. Helps with the algorithms. But more than anything, I just want to thank you all so much for listening. It's it's a it's a huge honor for me to spend some time with you uh, during COVID and all that's going on in the world. So I appreciate you taking the time to listen to us on your podcast device. So that's going to do it for this week. Be safe out there. Don't go licking handrails. Don't go licking trash cans. Remember, vodka sucks unless it's being used for hand sanitizer. Cheers. Listening to the Fred Minnick Show brought to you by Beeline. Visit findyoursippingpoint.com by Michter's American Whiskies and by 291 Colorado Whiskey. For more information on Fred's books, articles, and more, just go to fredminnick.com. Fred Minnick.